I'm Nick Enfield. I'm director of the Sydney Centre for Language Research, and I am talking here today with Jacques Robenheimer, senior research fellow in the discipline of pharmacology. Hello, Jacques. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? Good, thank you. So the Sydney Centre for Language Research brings together researchers from across the university. So Sydney University has a Department of Linguistics, but relative to the number of academics who work on language in one form or another, that's it's a very small group. So the Sydney Centre for Language Research brings together all of those people, not only in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, but beyond uh, such as Jacques in the, in the discipline of pharmacology. So it's wonderful to uh, have you here, Jacques, to talk Thank about you. the work that you're, you're doing. And uh, it shows us something about how work on language comes out of all of these other kinds of disciplines, not necessarily uh, linguistics itself. And so uh, you are working in the area of one of our nodes, uh, which is coordinated by Joel Nothman on computational approaches to language. So uh, I'm excited to hear about the work that you're doing. So perhaps you could start by uh, telling me, you know, you're in the discipline of pharmacology. How is it that you are using computational approaches to language in, in, in working on pharmacology? Yeah, it, it does seem quite strange, so it does bear some explanation. So I work for the Translational Australian Clinical Toxicology Program, or TACT, and we basically e examine data. So I'm really more a quantitative researcher than qualitative, so language isn't really my field. But uh, basically, uh, I probably wouldn't say I'm a numbers guy more than that I'm a data guy. I work with a whole bunch of data, and we're looking specifically at data related to poisoning, um, so there's a reasonably broad spectrum when you talk about poisoning, but it's generally basically all poisoning-related data. Um, so I might as well just jump in with the first place where I started grappling with language uh, in the data we work with because it's not just all measurements like blood pressure or um, some level of a, of a toxin in somebody's blood, we actually, the f in, in the process of trying to clean the data that we work with, we have uh, a lot of free text written information which could come from clinical notes. So it could be notes on hospital admission, it could be coronial notes in, a, in an autopsy. Um, it's also, we work very closely with the New South Wales Poisons Information Centre, so when they take calls related to poisonings, they also take additional notes related to the call apart from the other data they capture. And we have to try and make sense of that, and very often the simplest thing we want to do is find out what substance a person actually ingested. Um, now, that may seem relatively simple until you start looking through a pharmacological dictionary of different medicines and you realize that, that basically these companies choose the weirdest names that are really sometimes unpronounceable to try and uh, describe uh, uniquely their products. So the whole idea behind, you know, from a, from a pharmaceutical company's branding perspective is get a name that hasn't been used anywhere else ever before so that your name is unique, um, which then, of course, you get generic variations on that. So then you've got the same substance but with different names. 
and you've got these weird names that people spell differently because they're not exactly certain how it's supposed to be pronounced or spelled. Um, and then, you know, sometimes uh, with things like um, agricultural pesticide poisonings, you've got the same problem, very different names um, that are being used. And <coughs> sometimes they would report the brand name, sometimes they would report the actual substance name. So you have raw data from one of these sources, like uh, somebody's notes or, or, yes. or what have you, that will that may have one of these brand names and such and so somebody drank some of that substance or is that the kind of thing yes, you mean? Yes, correct. So, so I've, I've just finished, we're actually wrapping up a publication now on poisonings in Sri Lanka, which is one of the largest databases of um, poisoning-related hospital admissions in the world. So it's over 80,000 patients over almost two decades. And uh, if we look at the, the substance ingestion records, it's about 94,000 substance records. So some people took more than one substance. So that's how we get from the 80 to the 94. I think the most is about nine substances, but generally people take one or two substances. Um, but then you know, I've got basically free text descriptions of 94,000 uh, 94, different substances. Now, some of them are very easy to clean up. Um, so that sort of 80-20 rule applies. Right. You know, the first 80% of the data takes 20% of the time to clean and the, the last 20% takes 80% of the time to clean. It's just a law of diminished returns. The sure. harder it gets, the more time it takes to actually clean it up. Before you proceed, can I ask what is it about the Sri Lanka data? Is it why are there so many? Well, uh, there's a long history to that. So the people I work with um, have a long history of working in Sri Lanka, collecting that data. So it's not that that's the only place in the world where people were poisoning themselves, um, but it's one of the best places where data was being collected on that. Um, and then they do have a, a reasonable history of pesticide ingestion, especially um, other toxins as well, but a lot of pesticides, mm. um, which has led over you know, on the basis of the TACT program has led to, that's what our publication now is about, is about the impact of actually banning certain very toxic pesticides and how that brings the death rate down without actually um, affecting agricultural output. Uh, so there is a little bit of a history in Sri Lanka. It is disproportionate in terms of its pesticide ingestion, which, which could be just a factor of the ease with which pesticides were there. And other factors like the civil war that was in Sri Lanka and other things also played a role in people not not wanting to continue living and therefore ingesting pesticides and things like that. But, yeah, so it, it's a complex factor, but the big thing is that's where we have our data from for the last two decades. So what is the goal? You have the data, you have this linguistic uh, data that, and you somehow are trying to link it to presumably known poisonings known whether it's a death or or or, or an illness um what what's the application that results from you know what are you, are you producing a model are you producing a predictive tool what's the application that you're developing here right well if we can correctly identify the substance that was ingested we can work out case fatality rates for each substance and that can help us identify from real world data which is the most toxic substance so very often toxicity is just calculated on the base of what they call an LD50, which is lethal dose. So the, the idea is how long, you know, how many does it, how long does it take to kill 
50% of the rats that it was given to, but rats aren't people. Um, and so the that kind of measurement of toxicity doesn't really play out in terms of real experience because firstly when it appears on the market it could be in different doses than what it was tested at um, and it could just have a different pharmacokinetic impact on the human body so so what may seem to be relatively benign could actually be relatively toxic or vice versa and looking at the hospital data we can actually identify which are the really toxic pesticides that are really killing people so so does this mean that effectively your but you're able to turn these real-world poisonings into a kind of a natural experiment. Um, in a sense, you know, for obvious reasons, people uh, who develop these um, chemicals and so on would test them on, not on humans. Correct. <clears throat> but in the case of the, the data that you're talking about, people, humans have ingested them. Uh, and so if you can identify from the names in the notes, which exact substance caused, uh, you know, which, uh, which sickening or which death, you're effectively getting, you know, it's like a large experiment. Would That's that be correct. fair to say? Yes, yes. And that the aim of this is harm reduction. We want the most toxic pesticides to be banned. And, you know, it's not realistic to ban all pesticides. So instead of trying to ban pesticides that in practice are less toxic, we would prefer that the pesticides that to people are really toxic are the ones that get banned so you need good information to get that and as you've pointed out you can't do that in a clinical trial but you can do it from hospital admission data so uh, i understand that you're working on you know the idea of automating the detection of drug or poison names is this also one of the outcomes of this that you would be able to have a, a sort of a real-time application of the of a tool of some kind that you would that you would create is that is that right that would be one of my eventual goals is because we keep adding the data and there are always new substances that are being added so a lot of the initial data was just m literally manual cleaning which which is very easy if you look at the, all the different ways there's if you think about it almost 20 different ways people can spell paracetamol <laughs> and um, so if you just start cleaning those out manually uh, it goes it, it's fine but when you get to more difficult things you really it takes a lot of time to do it manually so I'm trying to look at ways to use natural language processing to actually um, associate those terms with the actual substances so my first experiment was to use fuzzy matching to try and take a list of known terms and match them to my terms and basically use the computer algorithm to select the item with the best match. Um, and I'm delving deeper now into actually applying some natural language processing libraries. Of course, they aren't really good libraries for pharmacological substances, uh, but I am basically reverse engineering some toxic toxicology catalogs um, and trying to build a library which I can then feed in and try and use that to, to match the substances. So what can you say about the, the relation between what you're doing and linguistics as a research field? So, you know, a lot of people, as I was mentioning earlier, when you look at uh, people who do language research or do research on language, wouldn't necessarily identify as a linguist. Uh, you know, we have departments mm. of linguistics and we have a discipline of linguistics, but 
of course, many people work on language who didn't didn't do a degree in linguistics or, or what have you. Um, and you mentioned natural language processing, which we would regard as being part of computer science potentially, mm. but also of, of linguistics and computational linguistics as a branch. How much linguistics do you <coughs> think we need to know in order to do the kind of work that you're doing? Well, <coughs> this first example, I mean, there's no grammar in it. It's literally just looking at individual words or phrases, very short phrases, because all we're interested in is identifying a substance. So some of the other things which I think we'll get to get more complex, but at, at this stage you really don't need to know anything about language because there's no, there's no grammar involved. We're just trying to find a word that on paper makes no sense to us, but we know is something and we're trying to find out what it actually points to in the real world, uh, which is some poisonous substance. Um, and it's just sometimes you, you not even Google can tell us yeah, Google is great because you can type in a misspelled word and it can say, well, didn't you want to suggest this? But some of the substances we've come across, uh, even Google with the AI built in for those substances can't do it. Um, so I'm hoping to find another way. And essentially it's just work, re well, it, it's, it's firstly reducing the amount of manual work needed to be done, but secondly also improving our accuracy. So it must put a lot of manual work into it yourself in order to get to that point, right? Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic um, project and it's a wonderful kind of application uh, to see. It's, just, it's so fascinating that now with digital data of this kind, I mean, how recent do you think the possibility of even doing a project like yours is? I would say really only in the 21st century. Um, so even a lot of the coronial information that we're getting is literally still handwritten. It's being transferred to the computer now. Um, this database that from Sri Lanka that I've been working on, uh, they started collecting data in 2002. So um, it's really very recent. And uh, just in terms of processing power, uh, just the language processing does require a lot of, of um, co computational power. So, so the fuzzy matching that I was doing, uh, this is a non-linguistic concept, but it illustrates the, the principle, I have to do what we call a Cartesian join. So uh, essentially you merge every record of one data set with every record of another data set. So if you uh, think about the data set with 94,000 poisoning substances and I've got a list of 8,000 possible things that they relate to, that's 94,000 times 8,000 that I've got to match and then compare and then select the best one. So mm. um, data sets suddenly just inflate in size. So uh, uh, part of the challenge is how do you do that programmatically to cut down on the computation? So I've learned a couple of skills there. Um, to there's better ways and worse ways of doing that. So, and it, it literally comes down to the difference between five minutes and two hours for an analysis. Yeah. But um, yeah, the processing power is also really only in the century that we're actually able to do that. Right, so the, d the data sets of that size and in the right form uh, and the processing power that's needed. Yeah, it's, it's amazing the, the advances that we're seeing at the yes. moment thanks to those two things. Um, I'd like to ask you now about uh, the other sort of line of work that you're moving into so um, perhaps you could 
just tell us about the work that you're doing going into um, social media uh, and related issues. Okay. Yes, so um, essentially w one of the other big poisoning and drug use related problems is that um, it's probably also a very 21st century problem is that these days you get what we call designer drugs um, or the more correct term is, is new psychoactive substances. They sometimes speak of novel psychoactive substances. So essentially um, anybody with, with enough chemistry background can, and can look at academic publications and can synthesize their own drugs in a lab. And um, the street name for these is sometimes called legal highs, which is a bit of a misnomer. But the perception is these are drugs that are not banned because they're new. So there's been no legislation to ban them. And unfortunately, legislation always tends to play catch up. So mm. um, these are substances that are on the street, that, but they're not necessarily banned. And the problem is that the people who manufacture this in some lab, you know, some clandestine lab, are more interested in the financial gain necessarily than um, sort of brand management or the quality of their products. So uh, the quality of these products varies quite a lot um, and they're literally being flooded into the market. So the, 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 the United Nations on drug and Drugs and Crime estimates that for the last couple of years there's been about 500 of these on the market at any uh, given point in time over the last couple of years. Um, and they were appearing at about 100 to 200 new substances per year. Um, so it's, it's stabilized now a bit, but there's a, there's a lot of these substances out there and they're not necessarily known. Um, and how do we detect them? You know, the idea would be to not have to have somebody presented in hospital with an overdose from an unknown substance before we become aware of it. And the the problem with surveys is that surveys typically require a fair amount of time to gather the data, then the data have to be cleaned and processed and worked into a report. So there's a reasonably big lag time from survey results to the actual report. Mm. Um, and we were thinking what better ways are there to try and detect new substances as they appear on the market and the question was, well, what do people report about drug use on social media? Um, and it turns out more than you'd think. Okay. Probably not a lot in terms of other things discussed on social media, um, but people freely uh, report taking drugs on social media. Obviously, the more socially acceptable drugs like alcohol uh, get talked about a lot more, um, but it's quite possible on social media to find people posting photos of themselves snorting cocaine and things like that as well, which I never thought people would do on social media, but <laughs> they do. <laughs> it's uh, amazing what people do on social media. Yes. So are you um, pulling together some of that language around uh, people's self-reporting of drug use? Yes. yes. So my interest sort of peaked when I read a report that was actually done by um, a center um, for, I think it was the Center for Race Relations in South Africa who did a study um, on xenophobia in South Africa and they did it in collaboration with an outfit called Crimson Hexagon. The Crimson Hexagon has just in the last year been uh, merged with Brandwatch which is a big sort of um, brand management, online brand management company 
Um, but Crimson Hexagon grew from a center, I think, not too dissimilar from yours at Harvard University. Um, so I can't remember their fancy name, but it, it was also looking at linguistics and social science. Um, uh, Gary King was the, the lead there. And they actually developed and patented algorithms to uh, analyze and classify social media data. And from this, they spun out the, the commercial company Crimson Hexagon. And they've been collecting social media data since 2009. So they've got basically a decade's worth archive of social media data. They've got full Firehose access to Twitter and a number of other large social media platforms, Reddit and, and so on. Must be an extraordinary amount of data. They reported in 2017, if I'm not mistaken, that they had one trillion bits of social media data. Uh, well, uh, posts, basically, uh, not not bits, because bits, uh, bits can be misunderstood. <laughs> one trillion items. Um, and it's been growing since then. They've added more services. Um, they do even targeted crawling. Um, so there's a lot of data out there, and they've got a. So a you're able to stuff. draw on that. Yes. So we were fortunate enough to get some um, or set aside some grant money to actually access this data for two years. So I've been trying to firstly learn how to access and then analyze the data. Um, so just some of the projects that we're looking at, we've got uh, two publications that we're wrapping up now on how people in the U.S. talk about blackout drinking, so drinking until they blackout, um, and how positively versus negatively that's seen, um, what the, the perception is about that. Uh, then we also are looking at... Um, trying to predict the outcome of the coming September referendum in New Zealand on cannabis legalization by looking at sentiment on cannabis chatter in New Zealand using this. Um, so part of the Crimson Hexagon platform is they've got a patented machine learning algorithm called Brightview, uh, which is quite amazing from a user perspective because it's click and drag machine learning. So you don't have to do all kinds of fancy programming you can basically take social media posts like tweets or whatever and say this is pro-cannabis, this is anti-cannabis, this is neutral, and you can classify and it will learn from that and then will go and classify the whole data set for so you. So this is a supervised learning type of approach, is it? So yes. people have to sort a bunch Correct. of them first and then the, the, the algorithm learns Yes. From people. So, so they, they, have, they have a training set that classifies on sort of eight core emotions um, and but that was trained on uh, several million posts but it is supervised learning um, but you can do your own classification so you can use it to classify different topics um, so f if w w one of the things we're thinking of is can we use this to detect when people talk about things like overdose or whatever else um, but at the moment, we're doing simple examples, so this is very easy because with the blackout drinking, we were trying to classify is it positive or negative, and we're doing roughly the same with the cannabis study. Are they pro-legalization or anti-legalization, or is it neutral? We can't tell. So can you say anything yet about what you're finding with that? So the blackout drinking, uh, I find fascinating. So this is people drinking so much that they black out. Correct then 
going on social media and saying, oh my God, I blacked out last night or I just got up off the floor. Or I don't know what happened. Th- this kind of thing, yes. right? Um, and then you're asking whether people are, are discussing this, sort of evaluating it as having been a fantastic, oh, that was wild and great, or, or evaluating it as being, oh my God, this, this bad thing happened to me. Is that, is that what you mean? Yes, so, so the lead research on this is, is also from Sydney Uni, Benjamin Reardon. Mm-hmm. Um, he's done a lot of work. He did his PhD on, on drinking in the US, on social media. Um, and w- people not only say that they have blacked out, they actually also declare their intention to black out. Right. Um, and that's obviously normally evaluated very positively. Uh, you know, it's very often with a lot of excitement. Um, sometimes you get people saying things like, oh, I've got to stop blacking out or things like that. But yes, um, surprisingly, the sentiment is um, more positive than negative. So I'm, I'm really interested in what you think can be done with that type of, you know, with the type of analysis that you're developing, this possibility of, of training algorithms or doing some kind of analysis on big data, which is all linguistic data. What do you think could be done? So I can imagine, you know, this might be, I don't know, from a, a film or something like that, you mm. know, that you could have some kind of um, anticipatory kind of monitoring or not really policing, but I could, I could mm. imagine that, you know, you have, uh, you know, Clippy uh, popping up and saying, it looks like you're planning to black out tonight. You know, here's a number you can call to get help for your alcohol problem. Um, I mean, is that the kind of thing that you think could come from this um, or, or with, uh, of course, with the poison, you know, that, that, that a, a, an ambulance will be dispatched to go into your house and sort of expect to find someone who's ingested poison? I mean, do you think those uh, applications are thinkable? I think that's a little too minority report for me. I, I think at the end of the day, I, I have my, I mean, I have my own reservations about how far this can go. Uh, just having worked with the data as well, I've realized there are limitations to what it can do. Um, I don't think it would ever get to that level. So uh, just a, as a quick example, I've done work looking also at, at what people search for on Google Trends. Um, and Google Trends data have been used in a couple of court cases. I have citations on that where the murderer actually Googled how to murder someone before committing the murder, which... Mm-hmm. I would not think would be a very clever thing to do, but it's happened here in New South Wales and in the US and and one or two other places. Uh, But that doesn't mean every time somebody Googles how to commit a murder that they're planning a murder. It could be a novelist who wants to get ideas for their novel. It could be a researcher researching Google Trends. (laughs) Uh, So there's a whole bunch of different avenues. So you can't get it personal. Um, For me, the holy grail that I was kind of aiming for with this was to say, well, when people talk about one of those new psychoactive substances, they use a certain kind of language. And if we can detect that language pattern, we might become aware of new substances out there. We wouldn't be able to pinpoint who's using it, but at least we'd have advance warning, something's coming. um, And we could then possibly look at further information and try and figure out, uh, you know, what is this and how can we prepare for it? Yeah, so there's an interesting issue here with language where, uh, y- you know, I think you touched on it a bit earlier, but with uh, 
criminals or people who are in subcultures or people who are, you know, there are a lot of different situations in which people want to have special language which serves as a kind of an in-group marker but also serves as a way of, you know, excluding people who don't know what you're talking about. So you get slang, yes. you get special terms, you know, and these things move incredibly fast because you don't want... You want to have the latest in word mm. for that drug or whatever the case may be um, to show that you're part of the group but also so people people don't know what you're talking about. Is this something that you think... I mean, does this touch on what you're... Yes. Yeah. And are you, are you finding then there's, there's ways to detect we, well, the latest firstly, word? We haven't received funding to actually, because that's a very large project to tackle, so we haven't been successful in getting funding for that. Um, and my first forays into the data have just been grappling with how can we use this to working towards that goal, so we're not there yet. Um, just as a quick example, and, and it sort of touches on this, is the third that I'm working on at the moment is just to try and understand how discourse moves from one community to the next. So with the whole coronavirus pandemic spreading across the world um, in March, some researchers just sent a correspondence through to a journal saying they noticed that this um, virus actually attaches to the ACE receptor cells, the ACE2 receptor cells, and they just expressed the thought, would this be harmful or beneficial? Um, you know, and they sort of thought, well, maybe if you're using ACE inhibitors, uh, which is prescribed to a lot of people, th it might actually make you more susceptible to, to harm for if you were to get infected. But it was purely speculation. One of the authors of that letter later said he regretted ever sending it because it was just a scientific dialogue thing saying, you know, colleagues, we should be looking at this. And, of course, the first thing that happens is the media grabs onto it and say, scientists say that this medication could be harmful, which is not what was in the letter. Um, and it got shared all over the social media sphere. And we've been looking at how people have been talking about this medication in the light of the virus. And you know, some people are saying, should I continue using my me medication or should I stop it until this is passed? And uh, we don't know, because obviously people are taking it for a reason. Um, so if they stop taking their medication, they're actually opening themselves up to other health consequences. Um, and just looking at how that scientific discourse got taken up in the public discourse and got disseminated is very fascinating. It won't help us actually pinpoint the people who've stopped taking their medication or not. Mm. We'll never get there. But at least we can understand how this statement led to a further impact and how we could, hopefully, if we understand that, we can possibly look at, well, how can we modify that so that uh, you don't get this sort of wildfire response to it? Yeah, we've certainly seen the effect uh, in relation to coronavirus um Regarding things like, you know, should I drink bleach? Uh, oh, yeah. Things of that sort. So I, I can imagine that for your clinical toxicology work, that that would have been an interesting yes. feature of the news cycle. Um, it's an incredible project and, and it's hugely interesting. Um, we're going to need to finish with respect yes. to just, you know, time. But let me ask one more question, and that is uh, just to ask where you see this 
whole line of work going and what do you think the potential is for this for this line of work perhaps just specifically for your own you know larger ambitions mm. i think the at the end of the day what I'm realizing more and more is that this doesn't supplant the traditional research we're doing. We still need to do surveys. We still need to get data from real people. Um, I think the best thing to do would be to find a way to find a synergy between what we see on social media and what we can actually get from real-life people. Um, people project themselves differently on social media. So um, there's, you know, surveys have biases, and, and we can't think that we can escape bias by moving to social media. We're e essentially exchanging one set of biases for another. And I think for me, the, the, the sort of ideal path to take with us in the future would be to find a way to actually synergize what we're already doing and complement it with what we can get, given its own limitations. Um, what we can find on the online sphere. And um, that's not only social media, although that's such a big part of it that um, that's an important thing. Um, and, and also just looking at how the media drives conversation. So um, I've noticed that very often you won't find discussion of something on social media unless the, the news media have reported it first, uh, for better or worse. And social media will amplify it. Yes, well, it's a fantastic project, and uh, I look very much forward to hearing how it develops as it goes along. It's amazing to see how the new tools of of, of big data sets and and you know new processing power can can take all of this language that's floating around and do and do so much with it. Shark Raubenheimer, thank you for coming thank in you, and Nick. talking to me. Thank you very much. <laughs>